Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to World at War Comics. My next guest is Mr. Gary Maloney. He is the co-founder of Limit Break Comics Collective, and he is also the writer and creator of When the Blood Has Dried, coming very soon to Mad Cave Studios. Gary, thank you for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Tommy. Yeah, it's going to be fun, my friend. Um, I appreciate you sending over um, a uh, early copy of uh, When the Blood Has Dried. I really enjoyed it. Um, man, maybe we could talk about that. But before we do, maybe we could talk a little bit about your history of how you got into comics, Gary. Um, did you grow up a big comic fan? And did you know that this is what you wanted to get into at an early age? Yeah, so I, I definitely grew up uh, reading comics and reading it widely in general. I was a bit like one of those kids that was always had their head in a book, whether it was the latest fantasy novel that they liked, you know, later on spy stuff. But like comics were always there. Yeah. Like it's a bit different in Ireland because while we do have, you know, the traditional comic shop set up, uh, those are much rarer than, say, news agents. So a lot of times if you're going in for your, your groceries, if you're going in to get the newspaper, there would at least back in the day be comics on those on those places as well. And they'd be things like 2000 AD, so the thing that Judge Dredd comes from, uh, kids' comics like the Beano and the Dandy, which are kind of very much humor, gag strip style things. But another thing that you would have seen there is they did... Marvel reprints for years and years and years. So there was obviously a big history of Marvel UK and, and over in Ireland, we got those too. But one of the, the kind of co main things that they did, at least in the year when I was growing up, is they had these reprint collections where every month, you know, you would have Astonishing Spider-Man and Astonishing Spider-Man would reprint three issues of US material. So you like people joke about the clone saga taking it for ages. It probably was a bit quicker over here because we were getting it as three issues at a time. But there was also but you so you get three issues and sometimes it might be two newer issues and then like a classic issue at the back. So they did that for Spider Man. There was a Daredevil run that came out as well at the same time that the two thousand and three movie. Uh, Wolverine had Wolverine had what one called Wolverine and Deadpool that I was pretty a big fan of, uh, which is why the movie title is so so funny because uh, but. But you had that, and that was really where I think a lot of Irish creators would have been exposed to the Marvel stuff uh, first, by these these collections. And Ultimate Spider-Man eventually came out in that format too. So that was my kind of first exposure to kind of proper US comics, and they would have been a big push for that, particularly in the early 2000s. So as the Spider-Man movie comes out, as the X-Men movie is starting to to pick up speed, and as it moves on from that, they were there throughout the 90s and before that, but I think there was a big push in the early 2000s that perhaps wasn't there as much uh, before that, or at least I wouldn't have been aware of it to the same extent. So I kind of started getting into US comics through that. Another kind of, you know, story that you hear a lot from Irish creators is that, particularly from the, the generation previous to me, or people who are slightly older, is that they would have grown up reading the Transformers Marvel UK comic. And that was a big thing because it had its own unique stories. My kind of version of that was like, I grew up reading a thing called Sonic the Comic, which was a UK, again, UK-based, uh, which was its own Sonic continuity. So it was separate from the Archie stuff, separate from the... It was really its own thing. And it was very much kind of a microcosm of the kind of things you'd see in 2018. So it was all dystopian and really kind of about, you know, this group that was rebelling against Robotnik and stuff. And I, I really, really enjoyed that. I just, I think that was one of the kind of really ones where I started looking at it going, oh, comics is a medium itself and not just I like Spider-Man, I like Batman because I've seen the cartoons and stuff. It's like, no, no, comics as themselves are an interesting thing. So over the years, that that's where it kind of all began in terms of like liking comics and stuff. And then manga came and I read all the, the things that you're supposed to read and then the things you're not supposed to read as well. Uh, and that really kind of got my kind of footing in, in comics uh, as a medium, something I liked. Uh, and then like, I think as that often happens too with people who are reading a lot as, as kids and reading a lot growing up, you know, you're, you're writing as well in the background. So any opportunity I had to do a short story, prose or whatever, or whatever it was, you know, I, I would be doing that, particularly like, you know, if you were in class and you told, oh, you can write an essay, or you can write a short story. I would always go for the short story. Uh, I'd be trying my hand at making my own comics and drawing them, even though I was useless at drawing. <laughs> you know, I'm like, I, I had like, I remember I, I, it's probably still at home somewhere, like a notebook full of a superhero character I made up. And I had like three issues <laughs> in inverted commas That's inside awesome. there. And I was building upon it the whole time. Mm -hmm. So I, I've always been writing in, in some sense. And I, like I, but I think a lot of it in my, in my early days was all focused on prose because there wasn't a lot of opportunities to really, or really like, 
I think it took me a while to realize, oh, comics are something that people write and don't necessarily draw either. I think I was conflated as being like, oh, the person who writes it must be the person who draws it. And be honest with yourself, Gary, you're not going to be drawing these things. Uh, but I had a, I actually had a really cool opportunity that happened when I was 15 or 16, where uh, the local uh, county library established a graphic novel project. And it was the first year they were doing it, where they got a professional writer and a professional artist to come in. And there was an application process, but you, it, it invited young writers from the city to come in and effectively put together their own comic. So the writers would go off for workshops with the professional writer, look and see what a script looked like. That's awesome. You know, how to break it down, how to break it down to panels. And then the artists would do the same with their, <clears throat> with their mentor. And the idea is that you'd be paired up then and you'd all put together a comic. So I, I did my kind of first comic, if you want to say in that sense, in like 2008. Uh, Thankfully, I think history, uh, it, it's not a great comic. Uh, it's not <laughs> even a good comic. And I think that, thankfully, most of them can only be found in that one library. But it was, it was very, very instructive in terms of, okay, well, now I know at the age 16 what this looks like. Because I think it's, because at that point, there wasn't as many resources like that around too to see, well, what does the script look like? Or how do you break it down by panel? What are the considerations there? Uh, and then really when where it kind of got serious for making comics was... When I went to college, I started writing a lot for various like comics websites, uh, doing reviews, doing opinion pieces, with the idea being that, okay, this is another way to learn how to make comics. So again, I was still writing, but it was mainly prose. Was like, okay, well, if I'm doing reviews or I'm doing op-eds, I really have to look at the craft of this and figure out what works and what doesn't. So I was kind of using that almost as a, as a kind of training ground to figure out, well, what do I like in comics? What don't I like in comics? Picking it apart, how does it work? But it was always within the aim that I want to make comics eventually. And when I moved from my home town of Cork uh, to Dublin, there was there was a, a really vibrant Cork comic creating community at the time. There still is, uh, but I I wasn't as as clued into it. Uh, but I also, even though I to the extent I was clued in, uh, I didn't have the money to hire an artist, and I was. And I was very much aware of the idea that, you know, I was a writer who nobody knew and it's not good to be asking people to work for free, you know, and I wanted to be able to pay people what they were worth. So I moved to Dublin when I got my first job, really. And through that job, I was able to save a bit of money. And I I went to a small press day event, which is something that they run in Ireland, the UK, where each year is kind of a celebration of the small press. And I attended that and I really kind of was introduced to the Dublin comic creating community. And I was like, and through that, that's where I met Paul and Garrett, who co-founded Limbrick Comics with me. And we went for points afterwards and we were like, you know, we, we could do something, you know, we could like focus on, you know, making our own comics and stuff like that. And so it kind of became a way to kind of hold each other to account as well and kind of encourage each other to push, push our craft. Paul and I are being writers and Garrett primarily being an artist, but someone who writes as well. Like, and we kind of push each other to produce things. So after that, I kind of gave myself a challenge where for a year I, I said, I'll do a short story every month. I'll do a four-page short story in the vein of a future shock. So four pages, beginning, middle, and end. Try to work a twist in there. And I'll, I have enough money set aside. I can hire artists. I can hire letterers, you know, and I can put, put them online and get them out there. Yeah. And so even if the story ends up being rubbish, then at least I have something. I have something to show people. And I'm learning the entire time because I'm, because I'm doing it. And if I'm failing, I'm failing faster. Yeah. And so that, that's how I kind of started. And ultimately at the end of that year, I had a collection of short stories, yeah. which became the first published self-published thing I ever did called mixtape, yeah. uh, which is where I in fact met my first, I met Daniel, my coll collaborator on when the blood is dried. Uh, but in the background as well, I during that year, I did the, the Irish writer center had done two kind of comic creating courses one was by PJ Holden, who artist works for 2000D, and the other was by Declan Chalvin. So again, I was holding my, my, honing my craft with them at the same time. So each short story was getting better. Uh, at least I, I think so. Yeah. Uh, and so that, that, then that, that's where Limit Break Comics came about, really. It was through that process. Oh, wow. Now, going back to when you were 15 and you published your first comic book through the library, was that um, of the superhero that you had created before? Or is that something completely different? No, it was something completely different. Okay. It was, I was uh, just curious if you used your own superhero in that story. 
No, no. I think it, there was like a theme to the anthology. So the oh. theme was like it, it was kind of a super, it was kind of supernatural themed anthology where all of them kind of had to be linked by a common phrase or something. I can't remember exactly. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but <laughs> I, can't, I can't remember what the common phrase was. Uh, but it was very. It was about. Uh, it was kind of a vampire style story that I wrote at the, at the time. Nice. Uh, as as was the the popular thing to do back in two thousand and eight was you wrote yeah. your vampire story exactly. and then. The million, the comeback, right? <laughs> they, they would park the gar- the garbage truck, put the money outside your house, and then of course, <laughs> but, uh, see it. that didn't happen to us at least not yet. But yeah. maybe someday. <laughs> maybe someday. Yeah. Well, it seems like at a very young age, at least storytelling was something that you were very passionate about. Um, was there someone in your life outside of the library, or was it the library that really kind of triggered this passion of storytelling? I mean, in terms of like sort of, I think like it's a bit of a cliche, but like we we, we kind of actually we're, we're very good storytellers, right? Yeah. So go like you know we're kind of a nation of storytellers. Yeah. Uh, we like telling stories. We like telling lies even more. Uh, <laughs> and sometimes there's a, the difference That's between the two. Perfect for comic books. That's perfect. Sometimes <laughs> the difference between the two is very very slight. But like <laughs> say like, my, like there'd be a strong storytelling community like and community yeah. in my family like you know oral storytelling is a big thing in Ireland. You know so like. My grannies would, would tell me stories the entire time when I was growing up, you know, and they tell you stories based on Irish folklore, things they made up themselves on the fly. And you'd ask the next day, oh, granny, could you tell us that story with the horse? You're like, what story with the horse? Don't you told us two nights ago? It's like, oh, I've forgotten what that was. Because you know, she's been completely making it up on the fly. But like my my parents always were always encouraging reading. You know, they're always very, very good at like, you know, encouraging me with that kind of storytelling side of things and encouraging me to read, you know, my mother reads more books than I do every single year, you know, and they're not, they're not books I necessarily would read, but she flies through them. Like, and, you know, if you're growing up around that, you know, that has an impact too. You know, that kind of has an influence. And particularly if you, you've, you know, again, with your wider family, there's this kind of strong interest in storytelling, song interest in song and stuff, uh, which again are kind of closely linked in kind of Irish traditional ideas. Uh, like we say, like if, if you were speaking in Irish, you don't talk about singing a song, you talk about saying a song as if it's a story. Yeah, uh, and so that that was always present in my life. So I think that that kind of kind of crept into me one way or another. That's awesome, man. I love it though. I love it. I love it. So let, let's get back to um, Limit Break Comics. So yeah. you have the mixtape is your first kind of written work under uh, Limit Break. Um, it was three of you that came together to create that, and all of you brought your own stories into uh, that publishing. Yeah. So Limit Break is myself. Uh, at least at the start, it was myself, Paul Carroll, and Garrett Luby. Uh, mm-hmm. We've since been joined by a fourth uh, permanent member, uh, a guy called Seamus Kavanagh. Uh, but the idea was that Limerick Break became kind of a, as I said, a kind of an accountability mechanism. So I was putting together my collection of shorts, and the idea was always practice the craft, get the four pages done, uh, and then publish it and have something that you could hand to an editor, you know, as a portfolio piece. Uh a lot of you know, a lot of times you're, when you're when you see people you know giving advice to creators, they're like, okay, start small, start with your short stories, right? Uh, and that's that's what I did. Uh, but there's also the, the other reason was that I think 2000 AD did did in a thought in Thoughtful, which is a convention over the UK, did a pitch fest, mm-hmm. and 2000 AD also had open submissions for short stories for four page short stories. So there was the idea was yes, I'm learning my craft, but then also I'm learning my craft with the view to I have an avenue where I wanted to go. Uh, and even though that didn't ultimately work out, I still think it's a good idea. And like any of my my other friends who talk with people who want to go into comics, like start small, do short stories, expand out to a one shot, go from there. But the i and but the idea was that you know I would do mixtape, Paul would do his own book, and then Paul and Garrett also have their own uh, their own kind of their own character, uh, a character called Frankie in a book called Meowch, who is this the way I describe him? He's like, what if you mixed a uh, Deadpool? with Garfield, right? Nice. So this is this, this assassin cat. So, but that was their character and that's they had been awesome. working on a kind of, a, a, and they're running, they have a series of that that's going on at the moment, but they wanted to work on that. Uh, they, there wasn't any idea to kind of publish any stories outside of our own. It was really just to uh, work with people we liked working with. So like I worked with several different artists on mixtape. Some of them were Irish, some of them weren't. Uh, and it was the idea we'd work with the people we wanted to work with. And then we just, you know, we'd, We'd help each other out. We'd we'd go to our conventions. We'd have our stand. 
if there was a convention I could go to that the others couldn't, I'd bring their books along and vice versa. And the rising tide would, would raise all, all the boats. Uh, and we started with, with our own kind of, you know, self-curated, self-edited anthologies. And then we kind of expanded out from there so that we're on a yearly basis now, we run a big open call for our myth-based anthologies. So we had three kind of ones that are based on like, you know, old, you know, established mythology. So we had one, Turning Roads was Irish folklore. Down below was Greek mythology as noir crime stories. Nice. And then Fractured Realms was Norse mythology as horror stories. The idea was, it was always a, one of the classic mythologies mixed with a genre and a genre take on those stories. Yeah. And just last night, as we're recording, uh, Paul and I, who we co-edit those those anthologies, finished up selecting the, the stories for our next anthology to come out, which is Wish Upon a Star. And that will be mixing classic fairy tales with sci-fi approaches. So reinterpreting those th- th- tales both thematically and otherwise. Yeah. Uh, and that's kind of like the, the meat of a lot of what Limit Break does now, where we'll have our annual open call, we'll run crowdfunding for it, uh, but we also make sure that everyone gets gets paid as part of that. Yeah. Uh, and we've been lucky enough that we've gotten Arts Council supporting in Ireland for that on occasion, which allows us to to pay people decent rates uh, for those books. That's awesome. Now, is the fan base mainly just Ireland or do you see a lot of people like in the UK, Scotland, Wales? Is it uh, like all of uh, Europe right there that you're uh, selling your comics to? I mean, when it comes to the conventions, we're mainly between ourselves. It's in the Irish based cons and the UK and sometimes further afield. But we haven't we haven't really had an opportunity to go much further afield because we set up Limit Break in 2018 we were expanding in 2019 and then COVID hit. Yeah. So we couldn't even go anywhere if we wanted to. Yeah. Uh, COVID messed up a lot of things, right? <laughs> COVID messed up so many things. But, uh, but one of the things that the Kickstarter allows us to do is that the Kickstarters for the anthologies where the kind of the bulk of our sales are for those yeah. anthologies, like those are international. We have people from the US yeah. who are getting it and like you know, lots of people from all over the world who are looking for it. Uh, would, you know, shipping has increased and made it more difficult. And we all we, we often get questions like, why is this shipping so expensive? It's like, you know, I don't know, man, tell the economy. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, so we always try to provide as well, like a, a very affordable digital copy yeah. as part of our campaigns so that we can cater to people in the US or in Australia and stuff who might not want to pay the extra it takes. But those have been good in that, you know, obviously we, we sell the the particular anthology that's, that we're looking for, uh, but also our back catalogue tends to get picked up a lot. So particularly if someone's, ordering from the US, they just go, all right, I'm going to pick the everything you guys have done uh, tier. And so we then break our backs lugging these down to the, the post office. <laughs> like say for for Turning Road, which is the first one we did, we had 500 backers for that. Wow. 800 for down, down Below, which was insane. And then roughly 500 again for, for Fractured Realms. Uh, four or 500 Fractured Realms. So it's changed, but like we get a good amount of backings and say a lot of those would be from overseas alongside obviously the people in the UK and Irish comic scenes who know who we are because we're showing up at things uh, and are following those anthologies too. I mean, that's pretty impressive to get anything over a couple hundred. That's pretty awesome. So congratulations. That's huge. That's huge. Oh, thanks, man. Like we, we, we I think it's, it's always helpful when you have an anthology that's like, because these are like hundred page anthologies each time. So you have like every individual person is bringing their, their people you know, their fans and their their friends point, yeah. and family to, to the table. So that, that helps, obviously. But uh, like, I think we've, we've put together good anthologies over the years. Uh, and we've, we've, you know, we've leveled up, you know, since we begun, began with these, you know, 25 page, 24 page, yeah. 30 page floppies to big, thick, you know, proper, proper spined anthologies that, like at least as far as I'm concerned, I'm happy to go on a bookshelf next to to anything else that would be in comic shops in the US or elsewhere. Yeah, you know, in the US, um, the the floppy world is is a big part of comic books. At least it has been historically, right? So every Wednesday, I'm at my comic book store picking up, you know, whatever is in my uh, pull box for that week. Um, but my understanding outside of Canada and the US, it's more of a trade back. Um, 
kind of business, right? Where people do want a longer story at one time. And so it makes a lot of sense. And we're starting to see that transition in the US. People are going from, you know, every single Wednesday picking up their book, waiting for, you know, those four, five, six issues to be put into a trade and then just getting the trade so they could read a longer story at one time. So we're starting to see that transition where the US is now following the rest of the world into that kind of that trade paperback. Uh, world, which I enjoy, right? I still like my Wednesday um, pull list. Uh, and it might just because I'm old, and I've just been doing it for a long time. Um, but uh, I do like to sit down for an hour and be able to read through something a little bit longer. So I, I think, uh, I think that trend is catching on in the US and might be why you're getting so many US backers too. I, I think people want great stories, but they also want uh, a little bit of meat um, with uh, what they're purchasing, right. As opposed to, you know, 24 pages and then you have this cliffhanger and you got to wait a whole month for the next part of the story. And by the time you get the comic, at least the older I get, I seem to forget what I read. So I have to go back and read why it was a cliffhanger to get to that neck. I don't know if you uh, are noticing that as well, but, uh, at least that's how I'm seeing the U S market. No, definitely. Like, I mean, floppies are a big thing over here too in that okay. sense like the, we do have like the i said we do have the the traditional style comic shops that have the floppies you know have the wednesday warriors you know i'm in in my local comic shop i'm picking my stuff up every every week or at least i try to every, every week uh and like i enjoy that too yeah. uh i think in terms of small press particularly it's becoming less and less viable to do uh, a single floppy uh and to realistically, you know, make any sort of, of profit on it or to like, you know, it, it, the the cost of paper, the cost of getting it printed is just too much. Mm -hmm. So it makes more economic sense to do kind of larger collections. But also all of our. All of our short story collections like that, they're, they're each short story. So there'd be like 20 or 25 short stories. They're all four pages. They're all self-contained. And so we, we try to kind of like we. I, I think one of the things that one of the things I like in comics is I, I think the I like short stories. I like, like I think there's a skill to doing a really kind of succinct gets in, says what it has to say and gets out in four pages or maybe sometimes over four pages. And that's some certainly something that is probably more prevalent or more more common on this side side of the ocean than over in the US. But I think you're starting to see a lot of the other companies like recognize the value of the short story format Absolutely. too. Uh, but I, but I know there is, <clears throat> I, I think there is, there is a changing marketplace between floppies and trades. People like liking to trade rate more. So I think like companies that are able to be flexible about that are offer different avenues for doing that are going to to do well. But I think the the floppy is always going to be there, and I think it's very. Uh, but I think it's re it's reassuring to see as well that you see a lot of a lot of series that might have done reasonably okay in single issues, yeah. but then really have their moment in, in trade. Uh, and I think you're seeing that more and more in the U S which is, I think is, can only be a good thing. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I, I, I love it. I love it. And I'm, I'm starting to see, I, I transition that way a little bit as well. Um, just because I want to be able to have that that longer story that I could sit down mm. and capture it all and be able to digest it and enjoy it. Um, but yeah, that's awesome, Gary. So Gary, you have this new comic going through Mad Cave. How did this happen, right? How did you go from publishing short stories um, through your own publishing to going through Mad Cave with more of a traditional style of a comic book? How did that happen? So I think that was... Uh, the, the short answer is open submissions. Yeah. Uh, that there was no Mad Cave are one of the few US companies that do a very comprehensive and open submissions policy. So that if you are putting together a pitch, if you're putting together a an idea for a book, you have somewhere to send it. Uh, Image do it, Dark Horse do it, uh, Mad Cave do it as well. Uh, but one of the where it kind of came from is that. So as I said, one of the when I was doing mixtape, one of my first collaborators that I ever worked on comics with was Daniel Romero, who's my co-creator and the artist on When the Blood Has Dried. And we we clicked straight away. You know, we realized that we kind of liked it the same things. We had similar storytelling sensibilities. And he's just a lovely dude, very yeah. easy to work with, you know, very pleasant. Uh that's and so, important, right? That's important. It's very important. Like people <laughs> yeah. underestimate us. You have to be able to live with people and talk with them. Uh <laughs> So like, but we we got on like a house house on fire, yeah. and you know we knew we knew that if we wanted to do something longer, if we were going to try to pitch series, because I also knew like that 
Daniel had the storytelling chops from day one, right? He's he's obviously gotten way better since 2018 when I first worked with him, right? He's like, he's just come on leaps and bounds every single year. And even between like the pitch pages for When the Blood Has Dried to the final book, he's just leveled up so much. But we always knew we wanted to work together on longer, on something longer. The question was like, okay, well, we need to find the right story first. And I have to be able to put aside enough to be able to, to like, Daniel needs to eat at the end of the day. So I have to be able to, to make sure that I can support Daniel for that. Yeah. And so I've, I think it was around, and one of the things I had done when I moved to, from Cork to Dublin, as well as that I started playing D&D. Uh, I hadn't ever played tabletop RPGs before that. I played a lot, a lot of video game RPGs that would be inspired by it, like Nice of the Old Republic, things like that. So I, I had like I had a framework for understanding it, but I never actually done it myself uh, until when I moved up and a friend of mine who I'd, I'd known for a while and then I was finally able to meet up and more often in, in Dublin was like, hey, listen, I'm running a game. Come on over and give it a go. And should have no har- harm in doing it. And through that, I kind of, I kind, I, I had kind of a realization, or like, all right, well, one thing I had a reawakening for my love of the tra- more traditional epic fantasy because I, I loved fantasy novels growing up. You know, I mean, I grew up when the, when Lord of the Rings became like was massive, but it became super massive because of the movies, right? So there were the video games, Games Workshop had had its own board game that you know I played relentlessly. You know, there was a couple of Christmases there where like, that was what I'd get. I'd get the new starter set every year for it so i'd have my men of gondor my night my riders of rohan and stuff that's awesome uh, and all, all of that so like i kind of grew up in that in that context and so along with that came you know a resurgence of high fantasy novels or in their popularity and so i was reading things like joe abercrombie you know uh, brian jacks philip pullman all that kind of stuff i was i was reading growing up then at some point i don't know what it is uh or what it was but i i kind of like i I got a bit fed up of the kind of traditional high fantasy. Uh, I'd tried at times, you know, it's like, oh, I can write a prose novel of my own and, and do things like that. Uh, but it wasn't really working. And I couldn't really understand why. Uh, I think I understand now. But but uh, for whatever reason, I fell out of love with the genre, right? And I still liked fantasy. So I was reading kind of urban fantasy style things, things like the Dresden Files and the likes of that. Uh, they kind of kept me having a foot in that. And I kind of liked that style. Uh, but the kind of and it also kind of like leads into why I did and I think that's why I ended up doing a lot of crime stories when I first started writing comics as well because I had the kind of urban fantasy background where many of them are are pitched as kind of noir takes on on fantasy ideas. Uh, but then, but ultimately, like I I kind of fell out of love and then having you know obviously Game of Thrones came along and that became huge. But then really playing D and D, I was like, actually no, I really really like high fantasy as a setting. But also in playing D and D and as playing as these kind of you know adventurers, you know. It got me thinking about okay, well, like there's there's the gloss that's over the D and D party in that you know you're all having fun with your friends, you know you're the protagonist of your own stories, you know, and you can be as vicious as you want or as friendly as you want, but it doesn't really matter because at the end of the day, most people in the game are probably going to love you anyway. Yeah. <laughs> and that's all very well and good until you take a step back and have a think about it a bit more. I right? say, all right, well, what did my party actually do this this week? It's like okay, well, we came to this village, we rocked up, uh, stole a bunch of stuff. Uh, we overthrew the local government uh, for no reason other than we wanted to, or that <laughs> someone was to pay us money to do it. And then we killed the bad guy, rode off into the sunset, and everyone is, and the villagers will live in peace forever. And I'm sure nothing bad will ever happen there again. Yeah. Uh, now, that's obviously being a bit facetious, but that's the kind of things that you would come across. Or, and you see it a lot in, like, say, like World of Warcraft or things like that, or like there's, there's been many jokes made about Zelda. <laughs> about Link going into these places and just robbing people blind and killing all their chickens and stuff. <laughs> uh, but the idea was like, I was thinking about it and I was like, well, like, I know we, we keep calling ourselves adventurers, but you're swords. And like, what is a sellsword? A sellsword is a mercenary, right? And mercenaries tend not to be the nicest people. Not you know, really. like, they're the, the mere fact that you're selling your sword, that, you know, is like, you know, that you're not fighting for a purpose, you're not fighting for, you know, a cause per se, whether just or otherwise. You're fighting for yourself. And it kind of hit me as well. I was like, okay, well, a lot of like, a lot of Western stories are like that too. They're about the old gunslinger who has lived this life and they might've been a bank robber or they might've been a cattle herder, things like that. And there may have been glory and all this fun when they were younger, but really as they get on, they kind of look back on it all with regret. They start to feel the weight of everything. Like it's there in Cowboy Bebop too. 
where like a lot of the characters there, you know, they've lived their lives and they're now grappling with those choices that they've made and choices that they're not necessarily happy with, but they have to live with them because they can't change them. And the only thing they can do is start to try to live a better life, whatever that might look like. And I was like, it'd be really cool if you looked at the, the traditional heroic fantasy that way. And if you took, say, the classic adventurer and get, made them the retired gunslinger and see how, how that works. Now, that's not you know, a unique concept that I came up with. But it's true, like there, there's been other novels, other novelists in the high fantasy world who've looked at that, or the epic fantasy, who've examined that and looked at that. But true D&D had really kind of solidified it for me. Mm. And, I, and then it also happened at the same time that, <clears throat> sorry, uh, that Daniel had started to work on illustrating RPGs himself too. Like that he'd be, he'd be hired for commissions to do up people's parties or he'd work on source books that people were putting together. And so I messaged Daniel and be like, I think I have an idea. And so the, that's when the idea of when the blood is dried came from. It came from that exploration of that like kind of rediscovery of the high fantasy genre, but also figuring out, well, what if I wrote it as if it was a crime story? Like, what if I wrote it as this kind of grounded take on fantasy? Not trying to be, you know, like deconstructivist or anything like, like that, yeah. or trying to like trying to be additive, but like looking at it from this this different point of view. So we we kind of came up with that idea. We kind of cemented the idea that if we're going to be doing something, it's going to be this during the pandemic. Uh, I was very, very lucky that there was a couple of opportunities that arose during the pandemic for, say, people to look at your scripts. You know, there was like professional writers said, oh, if you contributed X amount to this charity, I'll give you a script review. And so one of those people was Mark Sable. And so Mark Sable, who was doing work for pretty much all the companies uh, and is a really, really talented writer, uh, put out that offer and I took him up on it. And that meant that, okay, well now I actually have to write the story. Right. So I wrote the, I wrote the first issue for the purpose of getting notes back. And he gave very, very positive feedback. on it. He's like, I think you should try to pursue this and, and get it done. So Daniel and I chatted, we talked about how we'd get, put it together. And we put together the, so the first five pages that you see in the book in the final book that we sent on to you, those are the pitch pages that we put together oh. in 2021. So, and they were kind of designed with the idea like this is like this is going to be our our showcase for how we're going to present the book. Uh, so we put those together. It took a while, uh, and it took a while because for, for various reasons. Uh, but eventually, we got into a point in twenty twenty two where we'd gotten it, we'd gotten it put together. You know, we gotten it lettered, and we were ready to start chopping it around, and. As luck would have it, Madcave opened up their submissions at roughly the same time that we were ready in terms of we had enough material that we were confident that this is like one that the pitch document that I was going to be putting in was the best it could be. Yeah. The pages were ready and we ourselves were ready so that we could we could do it if we want if we if we wanted to. So I submitted it to the slush pile in Madcave and a couple of weeks later I heard I heard back from them. So it was like it is it, a lot of times I think when people are looking at breaking into comics or when you hear people give advice, people say, oh, you do your like I said, earlier, you do your short stories and then you do your one shot. And I think a lot of time, particularly and it might be more in the US, but uh, the idea is that, oh, well, if you do that, then you might get noticed. But I think the, the, the important thing that people don't think about as well is that you do that so that your craft is ready yeah. so that if the opportunity does come knocking, that you're ready for it. Because at the point at which that I submitted the the pitch to Madcave, like Madcave didn't know me from Adam. You know, none of the editors there had heard of me before. I just happened to put into a pitch that was that was picked up. And it was picked up from, from the slush pile and it could have easily not have been picked up in, in the same way. So I was very, very lucky in that sense, but it also I think it's a a testament to Madcave that they're a place that is willing to invest and look at new talent uh, and not obviously they've got the talent search program which is like so cool like such a good opportunity that like very few companies offer yeah. but also they're willing to to take that chance on newer creators putting in their own creator own work work you know if you've done the work beforehand if you're ready to go there is there is opportunities there for you so i think that that's a testament to Madcave as a company who've been like and as a, like an editorial and a publishing team uh, who've just been like wonderful collaborators throughout this process. Uh, 
but yeah, that's that's the the long story of how how we got to my cave. That's awesome, man. <clears throat> so as far as the story goes, right? So we have issue one that I believe will be out in April timeframe. Yeah, ten to April. Uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, and then how many um, issues have you and uh, David worked on um, leading up to this? Or Daniel, I'm sorry. Yeah, so we have three issues in the can, right? So at the moment, three issues are finalized. The fourth issue is going to be finished quite soon, right? So by the time issue one comes out, yeah. the majority of the book will be ready to go. Very uh, because we've been working on this for the last year. Yeah. So we've been working on this since January of 2023. That's when we started, you know, pencils pencils up, let's go. Yeah. Uh, pencils, pencils down the paper, start, you know, working on it. We've been working on it consistently since then, yeah. you know. And again, testament to Mad Cave, giving it the time it needed, giving it giving daniel the opportunity to do his thing because daniel is not only doing the line work but just coloring it as well oh, wow. uh, and the the results speak for themselves i think in a lot of that yeah. uh, and daniel is very is a traditional artist as well he doesn't do a lot of stuff the inking and stuff is all done done on paper uh, coloring is is done digitally but like so he puts a lot of effort and a lot of work into it and mad cave were very open and willing to give him the time he needed to make the book the best possible version of itself it could be uh but we've we've been working on it for the last year in various different different stages uh and I, I, when it was announced last month i was just finally glad to be able to talk about it and to not have to to talk around it on twitter going like oh i'm working on something really fun today you know, with, with an old collaborator who you, you may or may not hear about soon uh, it was, it was glad, i was glad to be able to finally talk about it yeah 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 no i'm yeah, glad it, too and i feel very honored that i was able to take a look at that first issue because daniel does do an amazing job um throughout that entire issue i mean the artwork is spectacular even the background um, so obviously, uh, you know, the, the world and the setting that the story takes place, there's a lot of things happening behind the scenes too on each of the panels. The amount of detail that goes into that um, is just crazy. I mean, there's a there's a scene where uh, um, Mabe is walking through the town buying like fruit and you could just see the background. I, I love that kind of stuff, the detail. I mean, Incredible, incredible. I cannot wait for people to get this into their hands. And what a perfect time for your story to come out with Mad Cave celebrating 10 years, um, their 10-year anniversary. I just think this is perfect for uh, you and Daniel to get your story out there because um, they're making a lot of noise uh, with their 10th year anniversary. And, you know, talking to Mark, all these other cool things that they're doing to really help that Mad Cave label, um, you know, be what it really should be, right, is one of the top publishers uh, around the world. And uh, man, what a perfect timing for you and Daniel to have your your story uh, be uh, picked up by Mad Cave. No, and it's been really, like, again, like such a privilege to work with them as well, but like to be part of that, you know, 10 year initiative, you know, like, it like it, it's you know very humbling in that sense that they, they would put us you know front and center and you go into the Mad Cave website and go oh look there's my book yeah uh, like in that like that like that can't be understated how cool that is oh yeah uh, for sure. <laughs> after like you know a long time you know working on on small press stuff but like yeah no Daniel's work on the book has been fantastic and each issue just gets better and better like the coloring just adds so much to it like you know like there's that vibrancy you say like that the town comes alive and like that's that's an important thing for the book because like the when you're looking at a book that's about, you know, a retired, you know, adventurer, gunslinger, who's looking back on that life of violence. Uh, and like the main kind of core of the book is about uh, the guilt that Maeve tries to escape from, the prospect of that returning into her life and what that means. And if that's going to cause her to lose this bit of peace that she's managed to build for herself. And that only works if you believe that the town is something worth protecting. Yeah. either like you know the people of the town but also just the soul of the town more generally and so you can understand why Maeve would want to hold on to that yeah and so I think in it's what Daniel does brilliantly in those kind of early pages set in Carrigan Vaughan is is really kind of sell you on the town as a character of itself yeah yeah no doubt I mean right because she's what you called a blow-in so uh she's not really born and raised within that town but because of her background and because of her experience of now being in that town and being accepted, she has a unique, I think, view of how important it is to maintain what that town has, as opposed to someone who maybe grew up there and hasn't experienced some of the things that Mabe has experienced, right? So her unique ability to see the town for what it is um, and knowing where she came from and now experiencing this life of peace 
and being accepted by this town, you could see how important it would be for her to kind of maintain what that town has provided for her. Right. And, and so there, there is this emotional side to it too, where you're kind of hopeful that uh, there is going to be a, a positive outcome because it, it has been really great for her. Right. Yeah. But like, I'm also very glad that you picked up on the, the concept of a blow-in because yeah. that's very much a, like uh, an Irish term that you see banded about a lot. So, like one of the things I want to do as well with this book is to kind of bring a kind of a uniquely Irish sense to the high fancy thing yeah. as well. So like uh, Maeve is described as a blow-in, like that's a, con- a term you'd see described a lot to people who have moved. So like I'm originally from... A lot so you're of a blow-in in Dublin then? Well, I, I'm certainly a blow-in in Dublin. But like, yeah. uh, but like that's applied a lot where I come from a lot of uh, from kind of a, a rural background, a lot of kind of countryside area. Like that's where, where my family would be from originally. And you'd see a lot of people who were either uh, born abroad or who were city folks who come to the country and they're, and because they weren't born and raised there, as much as they might be accepted by the community, they're always a blow-in. They're never <laughs> going to be fully, they're part of the community, but there's always the bit of asterisk at the top. Be like, ah, shake it, don't, don't listen to him. Sure, he's only a blow-in. Sure, what would he do <laughs> the place, right? Like, yeah. that's the kind of idea. And so, the, but that was, but that was, you, you hit on the nail on the head exactly. It's, it, what it affords her is that she gets an opportunity to, you know, know what what being without this town feels like but also the dangers that can easily be that can, that this town easily faces and how it could quickly lose what makes it special like you see like so much is written and talked about in terms of you know you know you can never go back home or you like you know say if you move away from your hometown right and you come back and the, the pubs that you remember drinking in those are gone the restaurants that you know the local restaurants that were there throughout when you were growing up have been replaced by coffee chains or they've been replaced by these other, you know, you know, more corporate elements, you know, or kind of, you know, the, where kind of a soul of a place is taken, you know, and it's, it's no longer the place you remember. So Maeve is grappling with that as well, because even, you know, if, even if, you know, the, the arrival of the guild, you know, this, this force that, you know, tried to kill her at one point, you know, she was part of it, you know, but she tried to kill her at the end. Uh, because again, like you know, it's very it's like you know, leaving a criminal gang, you, you, you don't do that, you know, you you, <laughs> you don't. That doesn't end well for anyone. But yeah. so there's there's the personal threat to her, but also knowing what you know, if you have a big institution like the guild, as we present the guild as as being this kind of you know powerful institution, yeah. if that becomes part of the town, then the character of the town will change. Yeah. And so, what is a very kind of you know warm and open place yeah. can change very very different, particularly against the context in which we see them coming to the town as you see a bit in issue one, but you explore a bit more in the issues that come on. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's the first, uh, I would say what two pages, maybe there's a whole other side of this story that we really haven't been exposed to yet. Right. Because it goes from that first scene and I, I don't want to try not to give too much away because I want people to get excited about yeah. this, but uh, right. There's that first couple pages, which kind of sets the tone later on, um, in the story, especially when you look back at those first two pages, when she finds out the guild might be coming to the town that she's currently at, then all of a sudden things started clicking. I had to go back to those first two pages and reread those. And you're like, man, there's this whole other story that hasn't been told about Maeve in the guild um, and how she got out of that situation in the first couple pages and made her way to that town. So I'm hoping that um, at least we get a little bit of that uh, story as well, Gary, because that, that sounds as interesting as uh, uh, the rest of the story and where it's going. Yeah. But like, that is like, I think th- those pages are on, are out there publicly. They're, they're in pre, those are on previews. Those are on Mad Kids website. So if you see like your know, preview pages, it's okay, from those first couple of pages. Excellent. That's uh, right. That's true. Yeah. But uh, yeah. But that, I just that's, want to be careful that I don't give away your whole story. Yeah, no, no, definitely, definitely. Like yeah. that's why you know, like it, it, I think they're they're fair game to an extent, uh, particularly for who's, who's listening <laughs> to this interview. But but I think it's important thing there is that there is this kind of parallel story, and it doesn't just stop in in issue one. So one of the framing or one of the kind of the structural things we do is that the first three pages of each issue are a flashback. Oh. So we start with Maeve at the very very end of that old life as this institution the skill that she's been a part of like and she's trying to escape from is trying is trying to kill her and each so you start with that kind of cold opening and as you said it kind of sets the tone of like this is what the risk is you know this is what is of the prospect of arriving in the town uh and no one knows it but Maeve you know no one knows the, the risks involved there and the danger that that presents 
But as we go on, so each issue has that kind of three page opening cold open, which give you more insight into how Maeve came to came to accept the town. So it doesn't go, it kind of follows chrono- chronologically where each kind of each, it's not directly one after another, but each opening three pages gives you an insight into Maeve leaving the guild and then coming to accept Karakadmon. So, you know, how, who rescued her? Yeah. Uh, why did she decide to stay in the in the town? You know, what lessons did she learn in those times? Those are things that we hint at and talk about a bit in the opening sections. But like you're right, there is an entire other story there about, yeah. you know, Maeve and what happened beforehand. Like, that's why, again, earlier I mentioned Cowboy Bebop as being one of like my kind of like creative touchstones yeah. because in so much in Cowboy Bebop and like when I was one of the code names for this when I was in the back of it was Fantasy Bebop because that makes <laughs> one of the I things in Cowboy, one of the things you see is that in Cowboy Bebop is this idea that Spike story Faye story Jet story we come in after their kind of character arcs have finished almost yeah. you know the Jet's past with the police is only hinted at Spike's past as a hitman you get flashes at but really the story is less interested in telling you about about that past, but more so how it how it frames them and how it how it informs who they are today and whether they embrace that past or reject it. So that was the the kind of one of the creative touchstones. Like that was the kind of feel I was going for with that. So the fact is is that this could be an epilogue to epilogue to an adventure that you didn't see. Yeah, but <laughs> it's more about. But in a way, you know maybe if, it, if the book does brilliantly maybe we'll go back and tell that story or we'll go back and tell different stories but like the this has always been idea of having it as a contained limited story that is about you know how one lives with that life yeah. rather than what that life was like itself ah so good so good gary i can't wait for people to get their hands on this i really enjoyed issue one it was a lot of fun oh, thanks man it's good to know that someone other than my than people <laughs> think that you and daniel really liked it yeah it's like, this is really good dan isn't it it's like really good gary really good <laughs> best thing you've ever written best thing you've ever drawn mate <laughs> yeah that's awesome man no i really enjoyed it and i cannot wait for issue number two um you know well april you said april 6th it's April 10th, so final yeah. order cutoffs will be a month before that. Yeah. So 10th of March, I think. Yeah, so I mean, anybody listening um, to this uh, podcast, you got to get into your local comic book store. Ensure that you let them know that uh, when the blood has dried, you want that in your pull box. That way they could pick that up and make sure that they have that every single month um, because it's it's good, if, especially if you, if you love these type of stories, man. You're going to have a blast with this. It's a story within a story, um, kind of, because there are two things going on at one time, which I absolutely love. And I'm so glad that you uh, mentioned that the first you know three pages or so are going to be a little bit of a flashback because that part of the story at least to me i found very interesting as well um and obviously the rest of the story is amazing and i can't wait to see what happens to the town and everybody that lives in it um, because they seem to have been experiencing a lot of peace for a very long time and i have a feeling that that could change a little bit as we get further along into this story so uh pretty awesome hey gary you know, as far as some of your earlier work when it comes to Limit uh, Break Comics Collective, how do people find that? And if they want to purchase some of your earlier work, um, how do they do that? So Limit Break Comics has its own website. So it's limitbreakcomics.com. Uh, but probably the best thing to do is to, so the, if you go there, there's a store. You can see all the different catalog of titles we've had you know, our own stuff and other thing, our own anthologies, other kind of self-contained or ongoing series. Uh, but probably one of the best things to do is that uh, Wish Upon a Star will be on Kickstarter in March. And if you follow, if you follow the, and the follow, the campaign page for that is already up, so you can follow it. Uh, and if you're, particularly if you're in the US and you're looking to get our books, that's probably going to be the most effective way for you to do it because you'll get the latest book, but you can also add any of our other previous books in it as well. So that's probably the best way to, so look at the website, something that you fancy, you can obviously order it through that and we'll send it out to you. But following Wish Upon a Star, uh, which is edited by myself and Paul Carroll and features a cover by Nate Stockman and Deacon Uff, uh, along with multiple other creators uh, who we're, we're going to be announcing those teams this week because we just finalized them last night. Uh, but that's probably the best bet to keep a, keep an eye on Limber Break Comics. So go on to Twitter, follow our 
Twitter slash X slash whatever you want to call it. The, <laughs> whatever it's called now, right? <laughs> whatever it's called nowadays. You know, I can't believe it's not Twitter. Uh, <laughs> any of the social media sites, look for Limit Break Comics. And if you follow us there, you'll be able to see when we launch the campaign page as well as everything we're doing going forward. Awesome. And then as far as Mad Cave, right, at least in the U.S., all you have to do is go to your local comic book store and let them know that you want that title um, in your uh, pull box. That is uh, When the Blood Has Dried, um, which is awesome. Trust me, you're going to want to pick this up. It's going to be one of those uh, those titles for Mad Cave in their 10th anniversary that you're going to want to read for sure. Um, and then as far as following you, Gary, um, how do people follow you um, and everything that you're doing? Or should they just kind of focus on Limit Break Comics? No, you can. I'm on most social media platforms as well. If you type in Gary Maloney or When the Blood Is Dried, I should should come up. Uh, you know, if I think on on Twitter or X, I'm M underscore Garold, which is difficult to pronounce or difficult to, to spell uh, for those outside of Ireland. So if you just type in Gary Maloney, uh, yeah. I tend to pop up, pop up as the only one who's there talking about comics. Yeah. Uh, but if you follow the Limit Break account, you you'll be I pop up on that too. So yeah. you'll be able to follow one way or another. So, um, Gary, uh, last question. Um, so this title, um, is your, your newest forte with Mad Cape. Do you have other stories that you're already working on? Um, obviously if you do, you probably can't speak to it, but are you looking at other things that you're uh, working on getting published in this same fashion? Oh yeah. Yeah. I've, I'm working on a couple of different things that I want to, to get off the ground. Uh, there's nothing I can, can talk about yet. Uh, but I'm in the, I'm in the, the middle of putting together additional you know different different series together and shopping them around uh which creators with collaborators i've worked with in the past and some newer ones too uh so yeah but I'm, I'm, I'm definitely working on what's next uh but also focusing on trying to make sure that people know about when the blood has dried and one of the cool things we're going to be doing is that there's going to be some uh or there, there there's going to be some rpg tie-in material that we do as well uh, that will come out alongside the book. So you'll have kind of that kind of additional things too, uh, a bit like Die, a bit like The Last God from Philip K. Johnson. So there'll be kind of D&D compatible stuff too. So that's a fun little additional thing we're doing alongside it. But really, I'm just focusing on, on trying to to make sure as many people as possible know about the book uh, and give it a shot. But uh, yeah, I have notebooks upon notebooks of ideas uh, <laughs> and I have a couple of other notebooks that have a focus. All right, here's what the story is. Here's what the pitch looks like. And so I'm just working with my collaborators at the moment and trying to make those books and those pitches the best they can be. And then hopefully they find a home uh, somewhere nice. Yeah, I'm sure they will. I'm sure they will. Well, Gary, I can't tell you how much I appreciate uh, connecting with me over on X. I'm so uh, happy to have had you on. I'm hoping that as soon as this thing uh, drops and hits comic book stores, we could have you back on and maybe we could talk a little bit about issue two, three and so on and Definitely. so forth. It'd be a lot of fun, man. No, definitely, definitely. Like once we, once a couple of more, once it's it's out, we can have a yeah. chat about that uh, and go from there. Yeah, I'm just definitely, definitely happy, happy to come back on. It's, no, been, fun. it's been really, really fun. I'm glad that you enjoyed it, Gary. I've enjoyed it myself, and uh, I've enjoyed getting to know you. And uh, yeah, you're always welcome, my friend. Thank you so much, Tommy. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet. Thanks for uh, joining me today, and I hope you have a wonderful week. You too. All right. Thank you. 